Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. February 15th, 2024, the well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast. Also, I would say exactly that, like Joe Biden, exactly the same. I'm joined by John Dickerson of CBS Primetime from New York City, who is also a well-meaning elderly man, but with a pretty good memory. Hello, John. Oh my God, so not true. I've always had a terrible memory. Who are you again? Onward. That other person, can't remember her name, uh, but you hear her, you hear her. I think it's Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. Not elderly, not a poor memory, but very well-meaning. Hello, Emily. Hello. This week on the GabFest, the Her report alarms Democrats with its claims about Biden's memory loss. How can he change the story? Then the Republican House had time to impeach the Homeland Security Secretary, but not to supply aid in the most important battle for democracy in the past generation. Uh, how bad can it get in the House? Then Tom Suozzi takes back George Santos's former House seat for Democrats. Does his victory in the special election portend anything at all. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. Special counsel Robert Hur did not charge President Biden with a crime for his mishandling of classified information. But that legal conclusion came in a report that was disastrous otherwise for Biden. Substantively, Hur found that Biden had willfully kept classified documents after he left the vice presidency. Although, did he really? Hard to say. Even that wasn't the story either. The story was that Hur, after spending some time with Biden interviewing him, impugned Biden's memory in a, in a kind of side shot at him, saying he couldn't remember when his son Beau had died or even when he'd been vice president. It was a glorious present wrapped in a big red ribbon for the Trump campaign. We will get to the, the these political implications about the memory stuff in a second. But Emily, let's just start with the legal findings. Was hers clearing of Biden done properly? Did he reach a fair and reasonable conclusion? Did he present it fairly and reasonably? I think he reached a fair and reasonable conclusion. I think that the presentation was kind of skewed. So and mostly this boils down to the word willfully, which is what was in the very, very beginning of the report and thus got a lot of press coverage. Her said there was evidence that Biden retained the documents willfully. And then he, if you keep going, he says, well, actually, you know, it was the staff that moved the boxes there and it's not really clear that Biden knew what he had. And so the definition of willfully starts to be drained of any meaning. And, you know, look, Biden did have things that were classified in unsecured places, but I don't think that willfully really ends up being justified. And also, there's a question of whether what kinds of materials are we talking about here? Um, you know, there are classified materials and then there are the notes he took for this 40 page handwritten handwritten, by the way, memo to Obama um, arguing against a surge in Afghanistan that he kept that contained classified information. And the reason this is important is if you're trying to figure out was this was it willful and was it you know, for what purpose did he keep these things? Um, the notes seem also in a different category than uh, than classified materials that, as Biden described in his press conference, have that red border around it, you know. Um, and this all matters, of course, because what Trump kept had all the red borders around it. It was significantly more dangerous. Um, and um, the evidence is significantly more willful. Why, John, was was her short passage about Biden's memory so 
seemingly devastating? Why did it catch so much attention? I mean, you you texted it to me and Emily on whenever it was Thursday afternoon or Friday. It c- captured the imagination seemingly of everyone. A couple of things. I mean, it captured the imagination. The reason I texted it was, wait, what? Like, you weren't expecting it in this filing. And you knew that it was catnip because uh, this is an issue in the campaign. um, And you knew that the press would grab it. For me, the most important question is, in the most recent evaluation of behavior, how did the two men faced with similar, though quite different, handling of document, different in that Trump is more recent, more willful, more dangerous stuff that he kept? How did their most recent behavior display itself with respect to obstruction. Biden, they found this stuff. Um, there's a, in the report, it's like in a garage. It's um, clearly fits the pattern of what her suggested, which is maybe this was moved by staffers. Biden didn't even know where it was. Um, they found it. They went right to the proper authorities and said, we've got this, and then cooperated fully, including a five-hour sit-down with Biden with her right after the Hamas attack. How did Trump act in Contrast. Well, first of all, he kept materials he w- he knew he shouldn't have kept. Then when he was subpoenaed, he hid from the subpoena. And then according to the indictment, he did a whole host of things, including drawing other people into the scheme and orchestrating it itself to obstruct and, and uh, obstruct justice and hide these materials. Like, that's the question, because it goes to habits of mind. What do you do when your personal interest is at odds with the rules of the game or the norms of the office? And Biden is the clear, clearly you know, did all the right stuff. Trump is alleged to have done all of the wrong stuff. That's the presidential question. Instead, everybody went nuts over the over the age thing, and they went truly nuts. Like, the front page of the New York Times website was like the AARP magazine cover. I mean, it was constant discussions of age. Um, and it's an obviously important part of the campaign, both in terms of age and a presidency, and also in terms of like what voters talk about. They ask about that all the time. But it's the, the coverage went a little bit overboard. In his description, you are a well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. I'm well-meaning and I'm an elderly man. I know what the hell I'm doing. I've been president. I put this country back on its feet. I don't need his recommendation. It's How totally bad out. is your memory? And can you continue as president? My memory is so bad I let you speak. That's uh, that's that's my memory has gotten worse, Mr. President. My memory is not good. My memory is fine. My memory. Take a look at what I've done since I've become president. None of you thought I could pass any of the things I got passed. How'd that happen? You know, I guess I just forgot what was going on. I mean, this has all the hallmarks of overcovered problems because it, you know, is an issue that already speaks to a perceived weakness of Biden, right? So it's like a news event that goes to something that was already part of the narrative. And then it's something that everybody has an opinion on, and it's really easy to grasp. It's not like, what's the U.S. responsibility to NATO? Or how do you respond to the war in Gaza? Or the border, even? It's like, how many old people do you know? And how functional do you think they are? And how does Biden line up in that group. And so I feel like that's why it catches fire in this way. And uh, and Biden's behavior plays into it. And then but then the, and then but then the obvious question is holy moly if you're going to talk about random ways of talking and disconnected disjointed 
hopscotching mental behavior. Former President Trump has that in in spades. That's not the context in which it was often discussed. Well, but but it it, it is absolutely true that. But when you think about the sort of superficial marks of senescence and age, Biden has a lot more. Trump projects a huge amount of energy. Trump projects physical vigor. Biden does not. Trump's voice is powerful and and projects energy. Biden's voice is thin. Biden, when he walks, looks ancient. Well, it's really about the right. It's I mean, it's about frailty, a perception of frailty versus um, all the chaos and mixing up of things and, you know, not necessarily having a total grasp on reality that you can have all of that going on and it can seem like chaos, but it's not the same as frailty. I don't think we're very good at figuring out how much frailty really matters. Right. I mean, I don't, do you guys think that his age, that age and decline matter in this way? It's not like he's going to ride a horse into battle. This is not, he's not King Richard the third. He doesn't, he's not, he doesn't have to fight at Agincourt. He mostly has to make a bunch of decisions based on experience and take counsel on that and appoint people and like understand what when their advice is good and when there's it's bad and guide them. The evidence seems to be that Biden is quite good at that, that Biden ha- is is at least competent at that, certainly. And, and in my mind, has done a really good job. Um, but of course, there's this other aspect of the presidency, which is the projection of we because we don't have a king in this country. We don't have a monarchy. This is where you manifest your sort of sense who is who embodies the nation. And when somebody is old and frail, there's a sense in which that spills into the sense about how they govern. They're, they must be, if they are physically frail, then the way they govern must be frail. And that is a problem. I don't think you have to make a defense of Biden to reposition the age question in the hierarchy of things you should pay attention to. The age obsession is a part of the over-obsession with the performative aspect of the presidency. Um, There's the old joke about the the streetlight. The drunk is in front of the streetlight, and the cop says, what are you doing? He says, I'm looking for my keys. You dropped them there? No, I dropped them in the park, but the light is better here. We cover the presidency where the light is. That's totally backwards, wrong, and has forever been such. You don't have to make a defense of Biden to say that that's wrong, and the age thing plays into that. Second, it also negates the the other thing that we know that is true of age, which is wisdom, and that the presidency is a job of wisdom and restraint and experience. All of those things come with age. And so to completely absent it from the conversation is bonkers. It also is mismatched in the order of priorities in that one's imaginings about how a person who is older would respond should not be given more weight than the publicly stated, articulated policies of a person that are consistent with their previous behavior that are truly a challenge to the republic. That would be many of the things that Donald Trump has said. So it's weirdly ordered. I understand why where it comes from, but it's weirdly ordered in the way we really should think about the job. One more thing about her. It was very sneaky how he got this in. He says there's not enough evidence to bring these charges. And then he brings this in by saying that because of Biden's weak memory, a jury would be less likely to find him guilty, that they would think of him as like, well, maybe I just forgot. But if you don't have evidence to bring the charges, it doesn't matter what the jury would say. There's no reason except that you want to shoehorn in this damaging take on interviewing him. And there's something just fundamentally discouraging about that. You know, Attorney General Merrick Garland 
chose a special counsel who was a Republican in a kind of act of, I think, what he perceived as like, I don't know, statesmanship or utter fairness and even handedness. Um, And then it's basically like blown up in his face because her is acting like a political operative um, by unleashing this whole storm. And, you know, you kind of want to believe in the version of investigations and politics as Garland is trying to play them very straight. But it also seems so naive, at least in retrospect. It's not at all funny, but wouldn't it be just sort of sickeningly funny if if Merrick Garland, who is the vehicle for the victory of Donald Trump in 2016, becomes the vehicle for the victory of Donald Trump in 2024 via this this bank shot. Oh, my God. By playing by the rules that um, he was denied the office, you could argue, when people didn't play by the rules. That's an incredibly insightful insightful thought. Emily, what do you think Democrats can do to minimize the harm here? The story they, they're telling in public, which I suppose is the one they have to tell, is that once people focus on Trump's chaos and wickedness, Biden will seem like a safe pair of hands. But then if you add, they, Politico surveyed a bunch of political operatives about what Biden's campaign should do, and they had literally no good ideas. Their ideas were like, uh, ultimately, this can't be spun. He doesn't have many options. I mean, what can well, I do? like the idea of him being out in public more, um, sitting for TV really? interviews. Yeah, because I think that people need to see him either way. And obviously, he should perform as vigorously as he can. But there, <laughs> no, seriously. But also, it's it is part of your job being able to talk about your ideas and your accomplishments and your goals. Everyone is making really pained faces right now. Look, if it doesn't work, then they could still dump him at the convention. I, that's not my own sense of what is likely or probably such a good idea. But, you know, like, I do think that it was a mistake to pass up the Super Bowl interview, for example. Is, is that dumb? The problem um, with what you say, Emily, is you run into all the other reasons it's not great to have a president out speaking. So in other words, you could Im- there are many reasons not to have a vigorous, articulate, perfectly virile president in front of the cameras all the time because it ramps up the other side's base. There are some things that you can't just can't like talking about Israel and Hamas and Gaza is not easy. In fact, the headline of his response to her was not that he mistook the or he transposed the president of Mexico and Egypt or that he appears, according to NBC's reporting, to have maybe made up an exchange about his son, Bo, in the in the interview. And that's a sleeper problem for him. Her maybe is going to testify in front of the House Judiciary Committee, a very favorable location. And if it turns out that Biden in his press conference made up an exchange about Bo Biden, um, that is going to that's not going to be good. Um Made up, you know, anyway, so that, um, but, um, the, you know, there are lots of, when he came back and then he said that, that Israel had gone too far, um, that was the headline out of that press conference. And there are all kinds of reasons you don't want to communicate. So I guess my point is you can, you, let's imagine he gives perfectly wonderful, active public behavior that tamps down on the age question. It might elevate seven other bad questions. The choice, Emily, is either you have him appear more and reassuring Americans that he's up for the job, or you have him appear less and rely on surrogates and on telling a story that the presidency isn't about a person. And both of those, to me, seem like terribly fraught options. I guess I guess maybe you're right that, that, that the one where he appears is has a slightly greater chance of success. But man, I don't like either of them if I'm, I'm the Biden campaign manager. 
We definitely should remember the presidency is about more than one person. And uh, I mean, in a perfect world, we would all adjust our, you know, ways of looking at this to conform with the actual office, but I, I'm losing that battle. Um, but the, uh, the other thing though, David, is the, the other reason to not to, to sort of keep going along the route they have is he's running against likely to be running against Donald Trump. And if much of the voting is going to be on negative partisanship, then leaving the spotlight to Donald Trump is not the worst option um, because Donald Trump at every appearance um, demonstrates uh, why those voters who left him uh, are, are not coming back to him. Hey, Slate Plus listeners, thank you. You have helped us keep the GAFAS going for so long and you've gotten a great stuff for your subscription. Bonus segments on every episode, special discounts on live shows, no hitting the paywall on the Slate site, a lot more. This week for a Slate Plus segment, uh, we're doing something special, which is we talked the other week about local journalism and about the need to highlight great local journalism and how important local journalism is. And we had this great idea, and I can't remember which one of us had it, I think maybe Emily, that we were going to talk to reporters who are doing great work, local work around the country. And we're going to have our first segment. We're going to talk to a, a great young newspaper reporter who's covering the hell out of the university funding crisis in Arizona. So if you're a Slate Plus member, enjoy it. If you're not a Slate Plus member, become a member. You're going to get a great segment like this. And you can do that by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. Slate.com slash GabFest Plus. A week after hitting seemingly Mariana Trench levels of fecklessness and bad faith and incompetence, the Republicans in the House decided they could dive deeper so after failing to impeach DHS Secretary Ali Mayorkas, they succeeded by one vote this week, sending a pair of incomprehensible impeachment charges to the Senate where they will be quickly rejected and shot down. Meanwhile, Speaker Johnson has declared he will not even allow the House to consider a bill approved 70 to 29 in the Senate to supply $90 billion plus in aid to Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan nominally because the bill doesn't address border security. Of course, it doesn't address border security because last week's Republicans, last week Republicans allied to Johnson and Trump killed the bill that did address border security and also provide aid because they didn't want to give Democrats any kind of win. It's a, it's a disgrace. It's a moral tragedy. It's a actual tragedy for Ukraine. It's a, it's a real problem for the world. Um, but John, will this bill actually end up getting a house vote where it would certainly pass with overwhelmingly democratic overwhelming Democratic support and, and a significant amount of Republican support, too. I think everything suggests it won't because it has to be put on the floor by the Speaker, and I don't think he's going to do what it. What about that whole discharge petition option where they all get together and sign something and have a majority and go around him? They have to get that requires Republicans um, and Republicans to sign on to a just discharge petition and or sign on to the final thing. Um would be, I mean, I guess some Repu there are Republicans who are who are retiring, um, but it's you open yourself up to. We've talked about this before, and it is a significant part of Republican politics right now. You open yourself up to a life of being targeted um, uh, physically for going against orthodoxy. I mean, the people who the senators, the Republican senators who voted for funding to Ukraine, you know, are getting full blast about being traitors. Um, so uh, that that limits the that seems um, 
like it's going to make limit the amount of Republican cooperation on a discharge petition. Wow. I am confused about how all the views, <laughs> the hawks and the doves got so mixed up in this con- discussion. You know, I mean, I understand the war between Russia and Ukraine is dragging on and costing a lot of money, but there are such obvious geopolitical um, stakes for the United States, for NATO, for the Western Alliance. Um, it combined with Trump's um, kind of eruption about NATO this week, it just seems like we're in this world in which, you know, the Europeans are going to have to fundamentally rethink their decisions not to have their own really strong military because they can depend on the NATO alliance and on the United States. I mean, you know, for Trump to say basically like, Russia can do whatever the hell they want to any European country that doesn't pay up um, for NATO for military um, defense. It just is such a (laughs) it's such a isn't it such a misunderstanding of not only, you know, the interests of the world and the way this whole post-World War II order works, but also the interests of the United States or. okay, Yeah, I mean, but one thing to note, of course, that Ukraine is not a NATO country. So Russia's attack on Ukraine is not an attack on NATO. So it is a different thing. But I agree, Emily, one of the greatest achievements of the last century, maybe the greatest achievement was the was the kind of marriage of American military and economic and soft power with European and East Asian and Australian economic power and soft power to generally improve the world and to protect democracy and, and largely hold off the authoritarians. And Republicans seem absolutely willing to just give up on that they just seem more or less happy it's not that they I, it's not that i think that republicans sort of want china to dominate the new world or they want russia to be more powerful it's just that they don't seem to connect they they don't seem to connect that this grand multivariate alliance across continents uh, was has been a significant cause of the prosperity and peace of the world and it's backed by expansive use of military power in some cases too expansive but but uh man a, a world in which we cannot fund a ukrainian army that is defending its itself against naked russian aggression and one of the worst leaders the world has seen in in 75 years is it's terrible it's just terrible and and it's immoral and i'm really surprised at how far Republicans have gotten here. One of the things I think that explains this phenomenon is is uh, Senator Marco Rubio's appearance on um, Tapper's show uh, this last weekend, in which he was asked about Trump's comments about NATO, which I think we should explore more fully. But Rubio, in his dis- response, essentially spent all the time defending Trump. By the way, Donald Trump was president and he didn't pull aside in NATO. You know, in fact, American troops were stationed throughout Europe as they are today. They were then as well. But he's telling a story. And frankly, look, Donald Trump is not a member of the Council of Foreign Relations. He doesn't talk like a traditional politician. And uh, we've already been through this. Now, you'd think people had figured it out by now. What he's basically saying is, if you, if you see the comments, he said NATO was broke or busted until he took over because people weren't paying their dues. And then he told the story about how he used leverage to get people to step up to the plate. And what that does is it denies him the opportunity to make the case for NATO. It denies him the opportunity to do what you're saying, David. And I think what explains part of the current condition is that the 
both because the base of the party that Donald Trump has built doesn't want to hear this argument and because Donald Trump and support for him keep his endorsers busy defending him off over on side issues, even when it's about NATO itself, they don't come forward and do what you might have expected a Republican senator in the past to do, which is to make a full-throated defense of, of NATO and say, better to have the Russians wasting their money with um, you know, attacking Ukraine than attacking us. Um, you know, they're all now freaked out about um, possible Russian nukes in uh, space, um, which might be a little bit of theater in order to get this funding to Ukraine. But nevertheless, um, some number of Republicans to come forward and make the case, it's not, it's just not popular. And they're busy having to defend their nominee. Can I just say one other thing about the discharge petition? Because of the victory in the New York special, you would only need a, a, a small number of Republicans to vote for a, a discharge petition, but I still think the physical threat there is um, considerable, and they would. I think that's definitely a part of where things stand. I mean, that's kind of incredible. I have to say, like that, the bullying tactics that Trump unleashes are so powerful that people's personal incentives go beyond, you know, political criticism, but to actually like worrying about their safety and well-being. That's kind of amazing that we're there. Mitt Romney had to pay $5,000 a day to protect his family after he uh, voted to convict Trump and said, at least in McKay Cobbins' telling of it, that other senators said, I would have voted to convict, but I just can't have this. I mean, Donald, whoever voted to support a discharge petition um, out of the House, Donald Trump would mention their name in every speech. Mitt Romney has enough money to have paid $5,000 a day for various other senators. He could have done that. It's so crazy. The Ukraine war, what's funny about it, not funny, it's just what's true about it, it's cheap. It is not costing American lives. It is, you know, bolstering American defense manufacturers. So if you want to boost the American economy that way, you can do it. Defending Taiwan is also a cheap investment. And arming a fully democratic, morally justified Ukraine to defend its own territory is so utterly correct. And it's also correct to help Taiwan stay democratic and free. And it's, it is unconscionable, unconscionable that the United States cannot muster the relatively trivial amount of money. $60 billion is a trivial amount of money in this economy to do that. And the consequences, if Ukraine fails. Even, you know, they're not fighting a great war. They're not doing a great job. I'm not saying they're going to get back every bit of territory they've lost. But to let to let Russia have a victory there or enable Russia to have a victory there is would be a moral crime. And man, I hope I hope wiser heads prevail. What, Emily, do you think the purpose of the impeachment of Mayorkas is? What does it serve for anyone? Huh. Uh I mean, I guess it's some symbolic action on the border, even as they fail to provide any actual legislation on the border. It's like blaming one person and a Biden official for all the people coming in. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. I can't even really like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Emily Biden. I mean, reduced, it's just hard to make the case for that. I Emily's, just, it's so, Emily's been I don't reduced know. reduced to silence, which never happens. It's all symbolism and but and it's in the face it, wh of wh not... Let me ask you this then. Why is this different than the impeachment of Trump? Trump was never going to get convicted in the House after the first impeachment in the Senate. Never. N no universe was Trump going to be convicted. And they, therefore, you could say what a symbolic act it was to impeach him. Why is this not the same? 
Okay. Well, Mayorkas is being impeached over policy disputes, not any um, accusations of corruption or wrongdoing or obstructing the uh, transfer of power after a democratic election. And sometimes it is worth taking symbolic acts, um, even if you know you're going to lose because the stakes are so high. But I just find it really hard to summon up the um, energy to defend that proposition when you're talking about a basic policy dispute in the government. I think you also have Donald Trump wanting lots of impeachments um, in order to water down the overall stigma of impeachment. The question for me that that is interesting, Chuck Schumer has scheduled some kind of consideration of this um, Mayorkas matter in a couple of weeks in the Senate. And, and you see some evidence in the New York Three race that the Democrat effectively used immigration um, as a talking point. Um, and can Democrats um, flip this from being a bad issue and make Republican, we talked about this last week, Republican inability to do anything on the border, a, a good issue for them. Um, that's what, it seems that Democrats are leaning into that idea, um, which is not a certainty that it would be good for them because just the border is just bad for the sitting president. Um, and so this is a another chance where if in the Senate they have some kind of trial, it could very well be to demonstrate that there is um, you, the Democrats running the trial could use it as a way to demonstrate the the lack of policy success or activity from Republicans, um, which would be a politically risky but fascinating move. You know what is amazing in the Mayorka situation is that it seems incredible, and yet it is true that this is the first impeachment ever of a sitting cabinet secretary to in two hundred and what two hundred and some years. There was one other impeachment, but a person who was no longer actually cabinet secretary when he was impeached. But to have not had any any cabinet member ever, there have been so many disagreements about policy, so many incompetent people, so many corrupt people. And yet to have never had one impeached until now is astonishing. In other words, this is not the tool that people use for these policy disputes. It's called you win an election the next time. Right. And also the, the reason Republicans voted against this impeachment, at least three of them, um, is that they said there was no, I mean, there, there was no, not even any like pretend evidence of high crimes and misdemeanors. Let's overread a special election. Former House member Tom Swazi beat newcomer Republican Mozzie Pillip by eight points on Tuesday night to take back the Long Island House seat that George Santos resigned from. There was a snowstorm. Santos had been a historic embarrassment to Republicans. Uh, yet here's another case of a Democrat winning pretty easily in a place where Democrats have been struggling. So, John, uh, important, important moment, critical election, dramatic change in the American political landscape, or, you know, some special circumstances? Uh, I think all of the above. I mean, the, the most... It's good news for Democrats for a couple of reasons. Between 2021 and 2023, Republicans won um, Long Island's four congressional seats and almost every major lo local office and in the and the gubernatorial nominee won both of Long Island's counties by double digits in 2022. So it has been moving Republican. Um, so this is relative to recent experience. Um, and Santos, when he was elected, uh, did much better than Joe Biden did in that district. Um, and so it shows a Democrat doing well in a place that has been uh, trending red. Biden's also quite on the ropes. 
either you, people are worried about a hangover for Biden. And there is a large question and one of the fascinating ones about the misalignment of our political conversation and reality about how bad things are for Democrats. There, the number of conversations I've had in which people take the behavior of the most ardent Republican primary voters and pretend that it's the way all America thinks. So, you know, former President Trump will do something and somebody will say, and America forgives him. Not true. America doesn't forgive him. He lost in 2020. His candidates lost in 2022. He lost the popular vote in 2016 and in 2020. And so this is another instance in which people say, wait a minute, like there's all this political commentary over here. And yet the reality is that a Democrat wins in the special election. I don't know if that is in fact what was proved here, but it certainly gives evidence to Democrats who say, focus on what the actual electorate is, what the actual issues are, and your candidates will win. Also, there's just this very interesting um, way in which immigration was used in this race. Um, the um, Swazi used it so well that the um, Republican congressional campaign arm said um, that they basically, they were bragging that they forced Swazi to compete on their turf. Okay, sure. They forced him to, and he won. So it's it's a small uh, consolation that you forced him to talk about something. Uh, so it suggests possibly to hopeful Democrats that they can, in fact, talk about immigration in a way that can be electorally successful in territory that's not great for them. I, ca- I confess, Emily, I did not quite understand the logic of that. Swazi did it. Swazi did it in part. He talked about the migrant crisis and what a terrible crisis it was. He blamed the Biden administration implicitly for some of it. Um, it's not that he was running as some kind of liberal on it. He he was running as a conservative uh, uh, and saying, "Yeah, I want to deal with this too." How is that? How is that transitive for other Democrats who might want to use the issue? And how is it transitive for the party? I'm not sure the party is going to be able to run as, "Yeah, we're we really want to stop." immigration Republicans don't. Yeah. I mean, that's a problem is it seems like it works for individual Democrats, but then the party would have to change its policy um, as a whole. But I also think the Biden administration has been sort of moving in that direction anyway. Right. I mean, the crazy thing about that legislation that didn't pass was that it was almost as if the Biden administration and the Democrats were saying like, oh, you know, Yes, please. Like, please force us to pass these yeah. more yes. punitive yes. draconian policies because we see that we have a problem both um, on the ground and also politically. So, yes, you're right. There will have to be a shift in order for everybody to pick up the line that Swazi was using um, because he was sort of using it against the party as like an individual. But you can also see the Democrats moving in that direction. Yeah, I mean, Schumer was bragging in the New York Times to in a piece to Carl Holst that basically, yes, I figured this out. We we decided to add border security to the foreign aid bill to call the bluffs of Republicans that if they didn't go forward, as they ultimately haven't, to then be able to say they don't want to govern on this crucial issue, which allows Democrats to talk. I think that's a a risky and B you know, isn't certain that's going to work out, but at least in this race, it seems to have. Um, and it's a really fascinating, in other words, you just shift the turf from really about being about border to being about Republican, just total disinterest in governing. Yeah. It feels like a kind of insider's insider thing to do though. I'm not sure in a general election where everyone's turning out to vote, whether that's going to work in the same way it does in a special election with a very educated electorate. So we'll see. 
Although you could tie it to just general Trump chaos. Like, in other words, their congressional arm doesn't really want to deal. And you have a person at the federal, you know, at the running for president who um, is nothing but chaos. And so you add this and it's just total collapse of the ability to address national problems through collective action. It's a message that will work better if the number of people trying to get into the country goes down, if they're able to actually address the, you know, surge. Which is a challenge because they didn't pass this bill. ICE is saying they're going to release 6,000 migrants because they don't have the money to hold them. Um, yep. So oh, man. it's a real, it's a real, um, and there are ways you can say that Biden's initial policy moves um, created a pull. I mean, it's not like there's not evidence here for an argument for why Biden's um, attempt to balance humanitarianism with border security um, was a failure. Before we let George Santos slink off uh, to to the irrelevance and abject uh, patheticness that will characterize the rest of his life, jail perhaps. Did the Santos debacle teach us anything? Was will will we be beset by con artists and fraudsters? I kind of have the sense that it's become it's harder and harder in an internet world to be a true con artist and fraud because it's just very hard to let your real life and your the trail you've left uh, be be everyone leaves a trail but i do think that as politics becomes so ideological and patterned and national that there is this space for shysters who do not have any record but who can talk the talk to just to sneak into office i'm not sure that they're going to be as fraudy as santos but i do expect more people who basically have no record uh and come from nowhere and have accomplished nothing and may have maybe utterly dubious people to show up and, and thrive in politics. I mean, you can see that a little bit with a Marjorie Taylor green is a little bit like that. Um, and I wonder if we're going to just have lots and lots of such people rather than people who are really professional politicians who come out of the communities that, that they're serving. Well, I think that, uh, first of all, it's a, it's a great question. We've always had knuckleheads in Congress the market for entertainment by knuckleheads has rarely been so uh, so high, and it's higher in the Republican Party than it is in the Democratic Party, for sure. Um, and because and and you see the way in which Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert play um, play to that market. But what I'm intrigued by is your notion that in the in the internet age, you can't be uh, full of hokum. And win. I think that the opposite argument is that there is a there is an audience, and the conspiracy audience is is far more passionate on the right than on the left in its electoral behavior. That enjoys um, wrapping themselves in totally Im implausible behavior um, and conspiracies that would be necessary to paper over uh, whatever the internet may discover about your true corrosion, um, and that you can concoct a persona in the moment and deluge everybody with basically totally made up fantasy. And that there are a lot of people willing to plunk down their attention uh, for just total pokem um, and that the internet has helped that. And so I think you can argue that the internet actually makes it easier to be full of mal malarkey because you can make yourself up instantaneously. Love it. Agree. Hard agree. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you're, Full of malarkey. You had like five glasses of malarkey that evening. <laughs> you had malarkey straight, malarkey on the rocks, malarkey and tonic. Uh, what are you going to be chattering about? 
I saw the movie American Fiction last week, which I thought was interesting and worth seeing, um, though I had my uh, issues with it. And then I listened to the Culture Gap Fest discussion about it, which I thought was really good. And then I listened to an interview that um, one of the Culture Fest hosts that week, Sam Sanders, did on his podcast, which is called Vibe Check. Sam interviewed Cord Jefferson, who's the writer and creator of the movie American Fiction. And I got so much out of that conversation. It really deepened my thinking about the movie. And it was just like the sort of perfect aftermath to listen to that. So yeah, so I recommend, I guess, all of those things. But um, Vibe Check, I think, is a pretty new podcast. Sam is doing it with a couple other hosts, E. Jones and Zach Stafford. So I'm going to go listen to some more episodes. John. My chatter is uh, two things, a recommendation and an amusing story about a typo. Um, the first is the recommendation. There's a website called timeguesser.com. Um, time, T-I-M-E-G-U-E-S-S-R.com. Oh, like and essentially geoguesser. It does, it's geoguesser, but for time. Can I guess what exactly. it is? I've never heard of it. Yes, it yes, It shows yes, you yes, a yes. photograph. Oh, it shows God, you a photograph yeah. from some point, and you have to guess what year it was. You're such a – you're amazing. You have to not only guess um, – the year, but the location, which is quite fun. It was quite fun. I've, um, uh, I've spent about 10 minutes staring into a photograph, uh, of Chicago, which I got correct in the city. Um, but man, the time thing is so, you know, like the way you think that a lot of sixties musicians are actually seventies musicians and the same with, um, for me, the eighties, like, anyway, it's just really crazy how, I have a like basically I have to just assume that I'm going to be five years too early w- on any picture. Anyway, it's quite fun um, and amusing. The other thing is the um, is a story about a, a typo um, that caused some amusing um, uh, uh, market gyration um, for Lyft. Um, essentially, um, Lyft put out its earnings um uh, at the end of the day, I think after after trading had stopped, um, the press release said that Lyft's profit margins was expected to be 500 basis points for 2024, um, and that's a really important um, you know metric. Um, but it turns out that they'd added an extra zero, um, so in fact it was only 50 basis points of margin expansion. So if you look at um, if you look at the um, graph for Lyft and the stock price. It went up 67% when it was when their profit margin was 500 basis points. And then when the company released said, oops, we added an extra zero, um, it just comes straight back down. In the end, actually, Lyft uh, ended up doing okay because they've they've um, rejiggered their uh, the demand has gone up since the, back to pre-pandemic levels or close to it anyway. But um, that was a uh, um, a reminder, of course, to um, always check your math before issuing public press releases. There's a great uh, Matt Levine email about this. Matt Levine has a wonderful daily email about finance, and he had a great piece about was this a fraud? Was this securities fraud? Uh, what's the did it actually cause any damage? Why did it cause or not cause damage? Really interesting. I recommend. And what was his what was his conclusion? His conclusion was the reason why people release press releases like this right after the markets close is that actually there's no official trading for 17 hours 
So the markets close, you release the press release. There's after hours trading. So all the action you're talking about where Lyft stock moved is after hours. Because before even the markets opened in the morning, it had all been corrected. Lyft had noticed the mistake and corrected it. So there's no official trading that happened based on this bad knowledge. And so it was about how that correction happened. And then also about the fact that there is a safe harbor for securities in securities law about just mistakes. If you make a typo and it causes people to make money or lose money, you, you do not nece- you're not necessarily like culpable, liable, criminally liable. The company isn't civilly liable for losses that people may have had because there's, you know, mistakes happen. And we should say, and David, you'll correct me because you're better at math than I am, but 500 basis points is 5% and 50 basis points is 0.5%, right? That's the difference. So what if you were, what if then you were not, it was not a mistake, but you were using advantage that no, no harm would be done overnight. So you make the mistake on purpose, you correct it before morning trading, but what you've done is got everybody to pay attention to Lyft so that then they notice what you want them to notice, which is actually ride share usage has gone up after the pandemic and things are good for Lyft. So now that they're paying attention, they think, oh, well, Lyft has been doing pretty well, so I'm going to buy more Lyft stock. Interesting. The fraud is something entirely different. It was a it was a bait and switch. You made us look away. You actually, you made us pay attention. Uh, my chatter is, actually, it's designed for John Dickerson. So there's a nice documentary that's now out on Netflix called The Greatest Night in Pop. And it's about January 28th, 1985, when in a studio in Los Angeles, the most famous pop stars in the world all gathered to make the record We Are the World in one night. Uh, I don't know if either of you guys have had a chance to see it yet, but it's... I've heard that it's pretty dazzling. I can't wait. It's very charming. It's super charming. Super charming. It's Lionel Richie is is our our navigator, our guide, our our muse as we go through it. Lionel Richie is the writer, one of the authors of the song. Um, but you have Michael Jackson, you have Springsteen, you have Stevie Wonder, Smokey Robinson, Diana Ross, Bette Midler, uh, Billy Joel, Cindy Lauper, Huey Lewis. It's it's you know amazing array of people, many of whom came and and talked to Lionel Richie for the documentary. The song is fine. You all remember We Are the World. You can sing it. It's in your head right now. You're listening to it. Uh, The footage is incredible. The movie is extremely modest, enjoyable, trifle, except for one thing, John, which is Bob Dylan. And so there's, it's clear that Dylan can't sing the way the other singers can sing. You have people who are, you know, you have Daryl Hall, you have Smokey Robinson, Diana Ross, people who can just sing their asses off and dylan cannot and so there's this so what there (laughs) is is this incredible footage of the whole gang gathered together to sing the chorus and dylan basically standing stone face with his mouth closed not singing at all because they've kind of said you know if you can't hit this part don't don't try to sing it don't try and dylan just doesn't sing it but then the whole movie the whole movie is just worth watching just to get to the moment when dylan has to sing his solo because they've reserved solos for the most, just a phrase for each of the most celebrated singers. And it's pretty clear that when it's Dylan's turn, he just can't do it. He can't sing it. And he doesn't want to do it. And then Stevie Wonder steps in and Stevie Wonder teaches Bob Dylan how to sing We Are the World by singing the part in Bob Dylan's voice. Stevie Wonder does a Bob Dylan imitation. So that Dylan can understand how he himself should sing the song. It is so funny and charming 
And it's just you the the the, the virtuosity of Stevie Wonder, who is just, is just incredible in the moment. It's it's just it's just worth it for that one moment. Uh, it, it comes kind of late in the documentary, so check it out. Listeners, you've got some chatters. You've emailed them to us at gavfestatslate.com. Thank you for that. Please keep them coming. There's some really nice ones this week. And our listener chat this week comes from JT Horn. Hi, this is JT Horn from Stratford, Vermont. For listener chatter, I nominate Outside Magazine's podcast episode, A Wild Conversation with E. Jean Carroll, which was published on January 31st. I've been following the news about the E. Jean Carroll defamation trial for months. Most of the time, Ms. Carroll is simply referenced as a victim of a sexual assault and defamation perpetrated by Donald Trump. There's occasionally been a passing reference to her career as a writer at Elle magazine. But until I listened to the podcast, I failed to understand what a wonderful character she is or the zest and humor she brings to her life and her writing. We learn that Outside commissioned her to go on an investigative journey where she was trying to ascertain whether people are having sex outdoors. She takes on this question with gusto and a complete lack of prudishness. She pursues the investigation by going on a road trip in her polka dot Prius with her poodle as her companion. The interview describes her findings of this weighty topic, including confirmation that people are pursuing outdoor carnal pleasures in the gardens of Eden. Anyway, it's a wry and playful interview and gives voice to Ms. Carol as so much more than her status as a victim of Mr. Trump. Enjoy. That's our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is Julie Hugan. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the VP of Audio for Slate. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson and David Plotz, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.